Passage today, found in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that we can come together as your church and worship you, as Jesus said, in spirit and in truth. Pray that you would give us attentive hearts and minds to what Pastor Jeff has to preach to us this morning, and may we, re- may we receive it with humble spirits. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you. may be seated. How you doing? Don't you just feel like you need a warm something in your hand right now? Oh, I do. We are excited about continuing our message series forward. Today, the title of the message is A Forward-Looking Vision. We're going to talk about our upward, inward, outward vision over the next three weeks. And today, we're going to look at our upward vision. My brother and I, after completing Boy Scout and Cub Scout training, now I say completing, but that's a qualified term. Because I got kicked out of Cub Scouts, and he got kicked out of Boy Scouts for fighting. Not each other, we were fighting other boys. So we got kicked out, and, uh, but we learned enough about how to make uh, stuff that we decided uh, our, in our home in Goochland, Virginia, there was this large patch of trees right next to us, and they had just clear cut them all for some power lines, just cut them down for power lines, and they just left all the logs on the side, and so we got them. And then we didn't bother, like, uh, shaving them down or anything. We just notched them. We knew enough from scout training to notch them. And then we decided to build an amazing personal log cabin right there in our backwoods. And so we hauled these logs all day long. We chipped at them at the edges all day long, trying to get them notched. And then we spent well into the evening just stacking them, maybe six, seven feet high, And then we realized we forgot to build a door into it. (laughs) So we took our shovels and then we dug a hole door underneath the thing. Now, to begin with, it was sitting on non-level ground. So it was not on level ground at all. And in addition to that, the hole was dug in such a way to to make it even more wobbly and unsturdy. So there we were sitting in it all evening long, just catching fireflies and enjoying ourselves. And we got up in the morning and went to our best friend's house. He lived right next door to us. His name was Raymond. And we went to get him and and to show him this monument to our ingenuity. And when we got there, all the top logs had caved into it. And uh, so there was about 300 pounds of logs right there, caved in, in the exact spot where we were playing. So we just rebuilt it and crawled in it again and played in it again. And so it does not matter what you build. It could be the Freedom Tower in New York, a 
1700 foot building, the tallest building in the Western hemisphere. That building has a 70 foot foundation. It's 70 feet deep, pure granite. It doesn't matter what you build. If you don't have a good foundation, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to be in trouble, whatever you try to build on it. And so I want to tell you this, uh, the strength and size of any structure is determined by its foundation. The strength and the size of any structure is determined by its foundation. And when it comes to building a great church that Jesus is building, it has to be built on the right foundation. So what's our foundation? Christ. Christ, our cornerstone, right? It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets' teaching. Uh, And we can never build larger or stronger or healthier than our foundation. We can never build better than what was already laid in the foundation. And so that is Christ, and that is the apostles' teachings about Christ. So our foundation as a church is our God-given purpose for being. We're also built as a local church on the foundation of our vision and our mission. And I want to share it to you today. Over the next few weeks, I'm going to share with you our upward, inward, outward vision. And today, I just want to tell you what the whole thing is. So our upward mission, and I'm using mission and vision interchangeably here. Our upward mission is to make disciples of Jesus who gather to worship God in spirit and in truth. So that's our number one priority. Our inward vision is to gather those disciples and grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to send those disciples outward, outward, and go into all the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus. That's our vision. That's our mission. It is just profoundly simple. It is just not complicated. We want a vertical relationship with the Lord. We want to grow spiritually while we are here together. And we want to go out into the world and proclaim the great news, the good news of God's mercy and his love. So let's talk about this upward calling of loving God above all else. Loving God above all else. And our anchor scripture, our foundational passage is Deuteronomy 6.4, which says this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So we love the Lord our God because we are called to respond to the one true God of the universe. And we are called to respond with what? All that we are. Body, soul, spirit, strength, everything that we are. Right? So what does the word worship mean? What does it mean to love God supremely above all? Well, I want to give you some terms that uh, may help you. Some Old Testament terms would be the word Kadesh. And the New Testament counterpart would would be the word Hagioi. And this means to be made holy. It means to be set aside for a holy purpose, a consecrated purpose. Something you set apart for special use in the service to God alone. The next word is the word Abad. This word is an interesting word. Uh, If you read Psalm chapter 2, the nations are called to come and serve the Lord. Come and serve Yahweh, Israel's God. And the phrase servant of the Lord is only ever given to Moses and David. And the call to serve the Lord is given to Israel and the people of God. And in Psalm chapter 2, the nations are called to come, worship and serve the Lord. And then there's this interesting word, shakah. Uh, Shaka, which uh, means to bow the knee in respect 
to lay down or prostrate. To bow the knee in respect to lay down or prostrate. Now you'll notice with all these Hebrew terms uh, that they are not just terms that communicate something going on deep in your heart that no one can see. Some discreet work going on in your heart. Now, God does want us to worship from the heart. We're going to learn that today. But for the Jew, the ancient Jew, it always involved your physicality. It always involved your body. Which is why we stand every week. Every week we stand to worship the Lord. We call you to lift your hands, holy hands, in worship and prayer to the Lord. New Testament terms, let me lay some of those on you. The first one would be latreia which means to offer service or in sacrifice to a deity. So offer service or sacrifice to a deity. This is the word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12 when he says uh, to offer God your body, which is your reasonable act of service, your reasonable act of worship. And then you have the word proskuneo. Proskuneo is the word that is used most often. In the New Testament, it means to bow or to stand in reverent awe. And you can do either one. You can show your reverence either way, by bowing before the Lord or standing reverentially in his presence. And then I like this word, epineo, epineo, which means enthusiastic and accurate uh, acknowledgement, high commendation and praise. That's used about 30 times in the New Testament. And so all these are good terms, but let me tell you what my favorite one. My favorite one is the word hallel, hallel. That word means to shout to God with a triumphant voice. Hal means to call. means to call out. El means God. Hallel means call out to God. Shout to God with a triumphant voice. And hallelujah means shout, shout to God, the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, with a triumphant voice. And this is by far and away the most popular term in the Bible to refer to our praises. This is what we do on Sunday morning when we gather. We come together, and one of my favorite things to do on Sunday morning is to listen to your voices reverberating off those brick walls. Because I hear the faithful, the people of God, who have been set apart for relationship with God, praising Him and lifting His high praises. So let me give you a definition of worship. Worship is our response... So sit down, I'm tired. Okay, worship is our response to the self-revelation of the triune God, ascribing him the worth that is due his name. So let's break down that first half. Worship is a response. Nobody's worship is contrived from their own heart. Worship is always a response to God's self-revelation. If God had not revealed himself, you and I wouldn't be worshiping. We'll talk about that in a second. But worship is a response to what? The self-revelation of God. The truth of God. What God says about himself, right? So it's our response to the self-revelation of the triune God. If you don't have the triune God, you've got the wrong God. Because the Bible reveals both Old and New Testaments, God, one God, eternally existent, and three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Uh, we just uh, had a Trinitarian conference, a Trinity conference or seminar this last week. And hey, if you missed that and you didn't get to come to that, you can catch it actually on our YouTube channel. It's really good. There were some great sessions in there. Um, so I want to encourage you to go back and watch all of that. That will really strengthen your understanding in the God who is one in three. And then we do this. So we ascribe the worth that is due his name. What is God worth? 
What is the value of God? Well, that's what worship is all about. Worship is ascribing the worthship, the worth of God, right? And we, do, and we do this as we minister to God through a surrendered life. That's doxology. We do this as we minister to God through a surrendered life. We surrender all. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of yourself. Every part of yourself. That's our doxology. That's that vertical relationship. And we worship as we minister to each other by celebrating the glory, the grace, and the goodness of our God. That's corporate edification. I don't know about you, but every week when I come in here, I am edified. I'm built up. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged by your worship. I'm encouraged that there are three or four hundred other people that want to say the same thing that I want to say about God. Aren't you? And that has the effect of edifying us in the Lord. Edification. And then thirdly, it's declaring his praises to the nation. Our worship is a witness. Our worship is a witness. So we have doxology, we have edification, we have proclamation. Uh, I attended a church back in the Midwest, and in the 90s, this church exploded. And I mean to tell you, they were all the rage. They were producing material that other churches uh, like, like the one where I was uh, associate pastor, could use. It was just a machine. And I was shocked. I went to a conference there, and I went to a conference, and I was surprised that their philosophy of ministry was no congregational singing. And they had a really good reason for it. At least for them, it seemed like a good reason. I thought it was kind of puzzling. They said, we, we are ministering to unchurched people. And can you imagine how uncomfortable it is for an unchurched person to come in and and sing these songs that everybody else knows, but they don't know? Where else in their life and the culture do they do that? And in my mind, I thought, yeah, but this is the church. This is like nothing else in our culture. This is the church of the living God. Listen, our worship to God is our greatest witness for God. Our worship to God is our greatest witness for God because the scripture says this, that God inhabits the praises of his people. Well, I take that to mean that God manifests his presence. God's presence is accessible to you and I in the praises of his holy congregation. And so there's no greater witness for God than God. You agree with that? So our first purpose for being a church is upward, is to love God above all else, to worship him with all that we are, to declare his praises to the nation. So in doing that, I'm going to give you three priorities. Number one, priority number one is to the glory of God, is uh, to the glory of God. We don't worship for our own glory. We don't worship so that we can be a celebrity church. We don't worship for notoriety. We worship to the glory of God and the credit of God and the prestige and fame of God alone. And our worship, the basis of of this priority is our worship is made possible because God exists. It's made possible because God exists. And uh, if you're an atheist or you're a philosophical naturalist or materialist and you're listening to me right now, I want to tell you this. There is no other, there is no good explanation for why the human race in every culture and every time period, everywhere, ubiquitously, everywhere, is a worshiping race. It's because 
the best explanation for that is because they have been crowned with a religious nature. They have been bestowed by God with a nature that longs to worship. And you may say you don't worship anything, but I guarantee you, you worship something. You may not worship the one true God, but you worship something. And our worship is made possible because God exists. God is supremely worthy of our all. God is glorious. God is gracious. God is good. And because he is, he is worthy of our worship. And his character and nature is the foundation of our purpose as worshipers. So we don't speak comparatively when we talk about God. We, we, don't, we don't speak comparatively. God is relatively good. That's not how we talk about God. God is relatively great. Nope. God is the maximally greatest possible being. Right? And so if you've been around here for any length of time, you've heard me say that. I'm going to say it again. God is the maximally greatest possible being. There is, no, there is no being that is greater than God. If you could imagine a being greater than God, that would be God. So God is the superlative of all adjectives that we might apply to him. God is superlatively, supremely knowledgeable and powerful and loving and kind and wrathful. God is supremely great. He's, the, he's it. He's the top. So our worship is made possible because God exists. Our worship is also made possible because God has revealed himself. We would have no ability to worship God rightly if God has not taken the initiative to reveal himself to us. So he might exist, but that doesn't do us any good unless he communicates with us and tells us what he's like. And he has in his word. We would have no ability to worship God rightly if it were not for his self-revelations or self-disclosure. God reveals the truth about himself, and that again is the basis of our worship for him. And our worship is made possible because God has commanded it and availed himself. Now, God doesn't just exist. He hasn't just revealed himself and, and hoping that we'll figure it out. No, God commands it. God commands us to come and worship. Come and worship. The Father is seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And he has availed himself by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has now been poured out on all flesh. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on humanity. And God has availed himself and made himself available. We worship God on his terms. We don't worship God on our terms. And this is one of the hardest truths in the Christian life that I deal with on a daily basis because I would, like to I would like to fit God into my schedule. Like I would like to worship on my own terms, but I can't. I worship on his terms. And that means he prescribes the means and the methods. And we worship him on his terms, not ours. So uh, just to give you a few Old Testament passages, uh, one New Testament passages, Exodus 15, 11, Moses says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And these are false gods. Now, we learn from the Old Testament scripture, these are no gods at all. They're just deaf, dumb, lifeless idols. But he says, who is like you, O Lord, among, among these false gods in the ancient Near East, surrounding cultures? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Have you ever had this feeling about God? Where did you have it? I remember one time, man, I had just moved from Virginia and we moved up to, uh, I moved up to Seattle to go to college and my roommate was a weekend warrior. Like his thing was just hiking 
He would go hiking in the Olympics, hiking in the Cascade Mountain Range. He would come back just looking like death warmed over, just pumped, just heart full. And, and I said, man, where, are you, where do you go every weekend? He said, let me show you. Want to come with me? I go, yeah, that'll be super sweet. You know, like, so uh, I just, I didn't take any gear, nothing like that. He takes me out to this place. We drive up, I'm not kidding you. We drive up to some mountain, I don't even know where it was, somewhere uh, in the Cascade Range. And we drive up and the road getting up there, I was sure we were going to die like three different times. I was like, dude, can, is there any way we could turn around? He goes, nope. No turning around, not till we get to the top, you know. So we get to the top, and then we have to hike the rest of the way up. And when we get to the top of this little peak, wherever we are, you could see the whole Cascade Mountain Range in Washington State just all the way. It was, now I was from Virginia. The biggest mountains I had seen were like the Appalachian Mountain, you know, the Blue Ridge Mountains. Those are foothills. Those are rolling hills like in Ireland or something. I mean, nothing compared to these mountains. And I just, I mean, we were lost in worship. As a matter of fact, he and I just burst into song. We just started singing and worshiping the Lord. And if you've ever had that moment where the glory of creation preached the sermon to you that God, this majestic God created all this, then you'd know how the psalmist feels. He is a majestic, glorious, great God. And he is worthy of our worship because he is the God of wonders. Psalm 145.5 says, on the, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Let me ask you the question, have you taken the time to meditate? Do you know why we repeat songs? Someone came up to me one day many years ago and said, why do we keep singing these choruses over and over? I said, because we're practicing meditation. That's what meditation is. The Hebrew word for meditation means to say over again and again. It means to repeat, to repeat yourself, to say it and then repeat it. And so the reason why we sing these choruses and we say them over and over again is because we're meditating on the words. I don't even know by heart half of the songs we sing here. I don't even know them all by heart. And so the reason why we do that is because we're meditating on the contents of the songs. The contents teach us the theology of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of the Lord. Well, that sounds really nice. <laughs> that sounds like a really nice thing to do. But then I have to ask myself the question. I have to take this passage and turn it in on myself and ask myself the question, am I really doing that? I mean, when I get up and I help my kids with something, with a problem that Carrie asked me to help them with, or I serve my wife by you know, driving the kids somewhere where she can't do it. You know, that's an inconvenience for me. I don't like to do that kind of stuff. But man, you know, like when I just say, oh yes, honey, I I'm yours today. Friday, I'm, I'm all yours. Whatever you need, I'm there, right? And I think, am I doing that for the glory of the Lord or am I doing that for my own convenience? Am I doing that so I could just get it out of the way and then spend the rest of my day for myself? Or am I thinking in my mind, this is an act of worship, I am doing this unto the glory of the Lord. And I would have to say many times I fall short of this. Many times. So priority number one is the glory, the prestige, the esteem, the fame of the one true and triune God. Our worship is possible because he exists, because he has revealed his glory, and because he has availed himself to us and commanded us to do it. Priority number two for the benefit of man. 
So it's to God, but worship is not for God. Worship isn't for God. I used to think that God like needed our worship, but God isn't some needy being. God doesn't need our worship. God, you need our his. You need your worship, right? I love this psalm in Psalm seventy-three. It says, "Whom in I have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." So let's back into that. The word portion is the word that they use for collecting whatever rations they needed for that day. So they didn't have refrigerators or they didn't have any refrigeration devices. They really were not very good at uh, keeping meat very long. They weren't very good at that. And uh, so what they would have is they would collect whatever portion they needed for today or tomorrow. They would collect that for today. And what the psalmist is saying is you are my portion forever, eternally. You, You are what sustains me every single day. God is what sustains me. He is my portion. And whom I have I in heaven but you. There is a sobering reality in this passage that every person in this room and myself need to come to a realization of. And that is this. We're going to lose everything. Everything. You will lose your health. Eventually you will lose your spouse. Uh, eventually you will lose your life. Your earthly life. You're going to die. So whether you ha- that happens to you tomorrow or that happens to you at the end, you know, in your 80s, eventually we don't take anything. We don't haul anything with us into the next life. So who do we really have? What do we really have that we're holding on to apart from God? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Can I really say that? Man, that's very convicting. Because there are a lot of things actually that I can think of that I desire. But is my desire really singularly for the Lord? My flesh and my heart fail. Everything fails me. Eventually I lose it all. But God is the very strength of my heart. God is the one who revives me. God is the one who will resurrect me at the end of the age. And bring me into the kingdom of his, of his glorious son. What more could you want than God? What more could you want? And with God, God has blessed us with all things, hasn't he? I mean, if you sat down and you really made a list of it, it's overwhelming to think how much good God has brought into our lives. And what a good God we have. In the end, we end up with him. And then in between, he gives us all things with Christ. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Now, God doesn't need our worship. You and I need our worship. You and I need it because we were made, we were beings who were made to worship God. We were made to be satisfied and fulfilled in his presence. So God is what we call self-existent. God is self-existent, which means there's nothing outside of God that is fueling God. God's existence is not sustained by anything other than himself. God is eternally self-existent. Okay, so God doesn't need us. He isn't a needy God. God commands us to worship him, not because he's needy, but because he's worthy. Not because he's insecure, but precisely the opposite, because God knows exactly his worth and his value. And his value is superlative. So worship reminds me of my place and my order in the created system. It reminds me of, it puts me back in alignment under God's reign and under his rule. But it doesn't just remind me of my place within the created order. It fulfills the very reason for my existence. 
So I want to say this. Uh, there are two real effects that can happen in our lives when we have an anemic worship life. Uh, one is that we just become sort of whiny, cranky people. And I know that's happened to me where I, I, if I really am honest, I check my attitude and think I'm being whiny and I'm being kind of cranky and needy right now because God is, not the, is not, God is not the strength of my heart. God is not the desire of my soul. God is not front and center and on the throne where he belongs. And because I am not centered in worship and I have this anemic worship life, I tend to be filled with anxiety that I don't need to be filled with. Filled with. But there are some really legitimate reasons to have anxiety. I mean, apart from the anxiety-inducing situations going on in our culture today with this crazy virus and uh, all the stuff that's happening in our world, those are anxiety-inducing situations, aren't they? Now, if you have health stuff or mental stuff going on on top of that, you're in bad shape. And if you're like me, If you're like me and you're dealing with some difficult stuff right now, some stuff you're just trying to work through, some stuff you're trying to figure out, why why has God let this into my life? Why has God let this touch my life? Why, Why doesn't God just wave his finger and make this go away, right? That's that's the time when you and I need to be reminded we need God all the more. The worst thing we can do is make God put God last. The worst thing that I can do when I, I'm just so, just so you know, I've just been suffering horrific arthritis attacks and it's kept me up all night. And my rheumatologist said, uh, are, are you losing sleep? I said, normally I don't. Normally I'm a sound, good sleeper, but I have not had a sound night of sleep in probably two months. And so I've just been, I've just been in constant pain. It's kind of like, have you ever hit your your, your, your hand with a hammer accidentally while you were working on something and you just bam. That's what it feels like for me all day long, 24 hours a day. So it's, I'm in pain all the time. And so uh, the other day I was really being whiny and I was complaining to God. I was sitting in my prayer time and I was like, fine, I'll read the Bible. You know, I had that sort of attitude. I did not come with a spirit of thanksgiving and joy. I came with a spirit of complaint and I was just like, God, I don't like this. This is terrible. I wish this wasn't in my life. This is the last thing I need to be perfectly honest with you. I got a lot going on. Don't you know that? God's like, yeah, I know. I know what's going on. And then I go back to the book of Job because I'm like, well, I'm going to commiserate with Job. Now, my problems are not nearly as bad as his. And that is a good book to read if you are feeling down. But let me tell you, what I'm struck with at the end of that book is that the answer to human suffering, when Job says, why do the righteous suffer? That's a question. It comes out of the book. God's answer is, I'm not going to give you an answer. You you can't even know the answer. I, I could tell you, but you literally would not even be able to process it. Your answer is this, me. I'm your answer. And if you read the description of God out of that little cloud, the voice that booms from heaven, from the skies to Job, at the end of it, I just find myself on my knees, just lip quivering, just worshiping the Lord. Because I don't understand why God lets the things come into my life and out of my life that he does, but he has wisdom that for me, frankly, is unfathomable. And when I don't know why, if I do know God, that's what I need to know. That's what I need to know. 
And so God commands it. So hear me, when it comes to things we cannot change, be they in our culture or in our bodies or in our minds, mental illness, things are always 10 times worse if God is not front and center. If God is not the center of your life, if God is not on the throne, if he's not the object of your supreme desire and worship, whatever you're facing is just going to be that much worse. It just is. So our hearts will be restless and our minds will be unsettled. Our anxiety debilitating until we find rest in the presence of God because we were made to be in his presence, not to be out of his presence. And the benefit of worship to us is the byproduct of a heart that brings glory and praise to God alone. Priority number three, in spirit and in truth. So we worship. So how do we worship? We want to make sure that we worship in spirit and in truth. What is the proper way to worship God? We worship God enabled by the spirit from the heart according to the word. So you can write that down. What it means to worship in spirit and in truth is enabled by the Holy Spirit from your spirit according to the word. According to God's self-revelation, according to his truth, right? So Jesus has this conversation. I'll read the verse first. It's chapter 4, verse 24. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What's that an answer to? Jesus has come to the Samaritan village to evangelize this woman. And he should not be there. As a Jew, as a male, as a rabbi. He has no business being in that town. Jews went around that town in order to get north to south, Galilee to Jerusalem. So they usually traveled around it, which was the longer, harder route. But Jesus goes right through because he knows he has a divine appointment, something God the Father has put on his schedule, this Samaritan woman. And the first thing they start talking about is where the appropriate place to worship is. She wants to have a theological debate with him. The appropriate place to worship is right here, Jacob's well, Mount Gerizim. And he says two things. One, you don't know what you're talking about because salvation comes for the Jews. It doesn't come from you. So he just, bam, <laughs> you know, uh, talk about secret sensitive. That's amazing, right? Not very sensitive when you tell a person you're wrong about everything you know. Okay, so he tells her that and then, and then she's intrigued. She says, well, I know when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all things to us. He said, I am the Messiah. And then he tells her everything about everything that is going on in her life, in her personal life. Turns out she's a Samaritan, a woman, and a sinful person. She's an adulteress. And she's so overwhelmed that he knows this. She surrenders to him in belief. She trusts in Jesus as her Messiah. But this question that is on the table, where's the right space? Where's the shrine that God, where God should be worshipped? Jesus has to blow that up. And he has to say, God is spirit. As to his nature, he's spiritual. He's not material. He's not corporeal. God is not a physical being. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, again, is enabled by the Holy Spirit from our spirit, from the heart, according, in accordance with the truth, in alignment with the truth. Worshiping in spirit and in truth means just that. It's worship from the heart, so it is spiritual. It's enabled by the Holy Spirit. It's spiritual, capital S, and it's in accordance with the truth of his word. That's what we call a, a theological. 
theology is the study of God. A lay theology is the study of God's truth. And so uh, Jesus was there for her to reach her. And then through her, her entire town. Now, what happens after she gets this message and receives Christ? She goes back to her town and she testifies. She tells everybody she knows. And when they hear Christ for themselves, all of them get saved. What do we learn? We learn that the best evangelistic program that we could run is is a radiant church of worshipers who worship God in spirit and in truth, who are going into the culture to tell people the good news they have found the one true God. That's the best evangelistic program any church is ever going to run. That's how Jesus did it. That's how we're going to do it. So here's the application. Is there an area in your life that's not being lived for the glory of God? I suspect if we take some time to reflect we could probably come up with a few areas where we're sort of phoning it in. We're dialing it in, but the truth is we need to surrender that to the glory of God and say to God, make the confession, God, I do that for your glory. That thing that I have to do is not just something that's on my schedule to do. It's not just an obligation or responsibility that I have. I do it as an act of worship for the glory of God. As an act of worship, I can think of a couple things in my life where I have to make that commitment on a daily basis. And are we in community? Gathered to worship, gathered together to worship the one true God. Our vision is to gather disciples for worship. Are you gathered? And if you're not able to be with us in person, I want to encourage you, find some other couples in the church that you can meet and form a little home church. Pastor Patrick will help you do that. But worship with others, gather with others, people you know uh, aren't sick, and you can worship with, if you can, if that's possible. If it's not, you get a pass. But, but, but if it's possible, gather with other believers because it's in the fellowship of the community where God reveals and manifests his presence so, so powerfully. And you and I, oh, we need that. We need that. Uh, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to have the worship team come back up. God, we just thank you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Uh, We also thank you that we have more than the truth. We have your presence, your very presence. You have poured out your Holy Spirit on our lives and on this church. And Father God, we just come to you this morning and we just want to practice worship. We want to say you are our priority. And we bring you our highest praises. And we bring you the longing of our hearts. And we bring you all that we are, body, soul, and spirit. We bring you all of our efforts. And we surrender them to you. And so, God, we cast ourselves onto you because we know that you care for us. And, Lord, I just pray right now that... uh, that you would just bless every person who is hearing this message. Bless them with your Holy Spirit. Bless them, Lord God, with your truth and help them to know that they belong to you and you want to be at the center, the very blazing center of their life and their world. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.